James Bond might be famous for drinking the vodka martini shake and not stirred. But his creator, Ian Fleming, had him drinking way more than that. What else, you may ask? Our guests today hold the answers. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Sponsored by Kettle One, I welcomed Mia Johansson, Bobby Hiddleston, and Edmund Vile at the second Lush Life Book Club at Oriel Bar in London to discuss their book, Shaken, Drinking with James Bond and Ian Fleming. Mia began her cocktail career in London, working at prestigious venues, including Mark's Bar at Hicks with Nick Strangeway and Milk and Honey London. Bobby started his career in Edinburgh, working in clubs, and when he moved to London in 2009, he met his business partner and wife, Mia Johansson. In 2016, they opened Swift Bar in partnership with another industry couple, and our guest today, Edmund Vile and Rosie Stimson and most recently, a second site, Swift Shortage. Since entering the industry in 2009, Edmund Viles' bar concepts have been consistently recognized and acclaimed by the drinks industry and public alike, earning multiple accolades and ever-present on the world's 50 best bars list. He also writes a column for Class Magazine since 2016. Sorry you couldn't be there, but thrilled I can bring this event to you. Hope you enjoy our in-real-life chat about Bond, James Bond, and so much more. Before we jump in, I wanted to remind you there are more Lush Life Book Clubs coming. The next one is tonight, when we will be revealing the secret history of the Savoy with author Olivia Williams. So reserve your seat at oriolebar.com slash special-events. And now it's time to hear from Mia, Bobby, and Edmund. There's no way I can begin an evening dedicated to our favorite spy without this famous quotation from the novel, Dr. No. And I would like a medium vodka dry martini with a slice of lemon peel, shaken and not stirred. Hello, everyone. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Book Club at Oriole, the Divine Oriole. So I am so thrilled to be talking about this book and bringing it to life. For those of you who haven't read Shaken, it is an amazing combination of extracts from the book, stories about the cocktails that are in the book, and most importantly, recipes and cocktails created and recreated from the book. So. We've got to start at the beginning. How did this project even begin? Uh, well, in one word, nepotism. <laughs> uh, it, it, I actually happen to be very distantly related to Ian Fleming. Um, and uh, uh, Ian's uh, sort of estate uh, and his uh, literary rights and stuff are still held in the family. So uh, it's actually the family of his brother, Peter Fleming. He was quite a famous explorer himself. And, and his descendants who are kind of, they're like the guardians of his literary estate and obviously you guys will have seen that you know that there's still quite a lot of bond publications coming out they get fantastic you know contemporary authors to write uh uh new bond stuff like people like sebastian Foltz, and they approached me with the idea to do uh, a sort of ian fleming and bond themed cocktail book 
I, I think, you know, partly because they knew that I ran these bars and, and so you know, hopefully I'd be a fairly good qualified person to, to talk about, you know, the, the Bond and Fleming in the context of cocktails and drinking. At that time, that was 2017, um, and we opened Swift probably about six or eight months previously. So, November 2016. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the four of us had been working very, very closely together for a long time, for a relatively short time, but very, very intensely. Yeah, yeah. Effectively, I knew that, you know, I'm not a mixologist in the way that these guys are. I'm a sort of operations, front of house guy. And so I knew that I was going to need some real help when it came to bringing these concepts to life in cocktails. And because of the style of Swift drinks in particular, like Swift drinks, delicious, they're accessible, they're the kind of drinks that if someone really stretched themselves, they'd be able to make it home. Well, they're built on classics, really. That's yeah. their twists on classics. Exactly. So I couldn't really think of anyone better to help me with it. But I have to admit that I felt quite nervous approaching them because, I don't know, anyone who's like been involved in any big project, but like a bar opening is one of the most all-consuming things that you can do. <laughs> and we were, we were very much under the cosh <laughs> when it came in. So even though it was obviously an amazing opportunity, I did feel a little bit um, sheepish when I said, do you guys fancy doing a cocktail book, maybe? <laughs> yeah. So where do you even start? Did you start by reading the books, see every movie? I mean... Well, the great advantage is that obviously Ian Fleming Publications as an entity understand the literary bond like nobody else. Uh, and the good thing is they kind of had a, quite a clear brief in mind of how they wanted the book to be structured. Mm. So, you know, they wanted to, be, to base it around the obviously characters in the novels, uh, obviously Bond himself and the things like weapons and stuff that, that attach themselves to him. Exactly. A lot of Ian's interests. And I think, you know, that's something that's really important to kind of stress about this book is that it's, it's very much based around the literary Bond. And, you know, we all know the films and they're fantastic. But for those who don't or haven't read the books, or don't know, they are actually very, very well-written books, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're great thrillers. I mean, you know, obviously, you could say they're very much of their time in, in certain ways, but they're definitely worth picking up, <laughs> picking and, up and reading. And, like, in regards to, like, the drinks, they are described in quite a short way, sometimes longer, just like the Whisper, but most often it will just be a very vague description. And me and Bobby are very much fact nerds, so we went into going, like, what was available at time, when was this written, what city are we in? What kind of area would we be in here? What would this kind of actually be described as? What would be available? So we went into kind of like the deeper books of what was other books being written at the time that were cocktail based and kind of researched backwards with that and then referenced that with the Fleming estate to make sure that we were kind of fact checking each other. And did you, could you pick any character that you wanted or what did they give you that? No, they, I think they had a pretty clear idea of the best characters to work with. But I mean, the thing is that you know, the Bond novels are full of fantastically rich, like, well-written characters. And actually, I would say the characters were probably the easiest element to work with. You know, Kissy Suzuki, Vasi yeah. Galore, you know, uh, all these fantastic, yeah, exactly, Domino, uh, Blofeld. You know, they're, they're really strong characters that, uh, that, that are easy to, well, I say easy, less challenging. I think probably the most challenging drink that there was was one that we needed to make around the theme of Ian Fleming's love of golf. Uh, <laughs> or the food of poison. Making a poisonous drink that somebody yeah. would actually like to drink. But making a poisonous drink was one of those going like, how do we make this sound really tasty, but also gave you the impression that you're going to drink it and die? Uh, which was one of those going like, 
how do we do this? <laughs> but it was fun, we used, ended up using electric fitters to do something that the Warrior Guys actually introduced us quite a few years yeah. ago. And it's something that has the absolute little flower, the nature tongue tingle. And we were like, well, that's quite a fun kind of aspiration where it's not going to make you die, but you get to have this experience of something is actually happening. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of the, like the big challenges because it was all about living into the character that Ian had written. Um, and we had to really made that feel like the dream. And how long did the process take from, you know, getting the character to writing it to then creating drink? Uh, so from, well, some, from getting the brief, you know, that involved obviously doing the research, trying to weave in passages from the books into the kind of text of the book and kind of creating a brief for that cocktail and then writing it and then passing that on to me and Bobby, who then had to come up with the... Manifest it. Exactly, to manifest the concept. And, you know, I, I think it's actually an extraordinarily challenging thing to do. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, I was amazed by... But it was uh, very grateful, your word of writing. In, in, like, Edmund is an English teacher at trade before all of this fantastic thing. That's right. But, like, his, his writing is so beautiful, this kind of matching with Ian. It's so descriptive and it's very fairytale. So, like... Me, Bobby, very much kind of like imagine our world. And then we could fact check back, or like, okay, Blofeld mm, had some Greek influence in his history. Great, we can match that with those details, moving into that kind of basis. But we got to live ourselves into the world that Ed, like Edmund had kind of like written for us, which made it quite easy. Yeah, it was really helpful. But we also had Greek literature as well, that we had to go like, well, this has to have German influence, but also <laughs> <laughs> But then, yeah, yeah so there's, there, there's a lot of kind of working around this, so we can make this work, and that's what we yeah, and I do really well, is we kind of create these, we, we know what flavours work with each other and what kind of things we can put together that will still stay true to, to what, what, what is needed, basically, from, from the book, from the character, from the individual that we need. Did they also not only tell you which characters to use, but also tell you which spirits to use with your oh, characters? No, no, not necessarily. Oh, good. No, it wasn't like, oh, God. But it's more just <laughs> like, okay, you would get a character brief. So, okay. for example, uh, uh, I think it's, uh, what's the guy? He's, he's like half Irish, half German, is it? Uh, Red Grant. Yeah, yeah Red, Red Grant. Grant, there you go, exactly. Um, and so that's the kind of thing where. Yeah manifesting that in a in a spiritual form like they're not necessarily kind of concepts or flavors that go together um and i think that that's that's what bobby's talking about but that's when we went like okay we've got obviously irish whiskey we've got red rum so we need to play out the character role we're like beautiful and party we're moving into that kind of area but also we need to really showcase that he's got roots that like we're going to be through this fantastic thing this because it's like pop. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it, I, if I, I'm not mistaken, this is the, the excuse me, it's been four years and there's 50 drinks. <laughs> uh, but I'm, it's Campari, uh, Beetroot, and yeah, Irish. Irish. Yeah. yeah, the Red Grand. Yeah. yeah. The Mississippi drink. Well, and it has a uh, handmade Beetroot flower that I made on the day. Yeah. And I remember on the photo shoot day, and my heads were completely soaking red for three days. <laughs> we're totally going to go more into the cocktails. But that, in the sec, Let's just go back to Ian Fleming as a novelist and as a drinker and eater himself. Um, he, he did say, I myself abhor wine and foodmanship, but yet he has a character drinking the best, you know, that you can get, eating foie gras, eating langoustines in, in uh, <coughs> Casino Royale. So did you learn a lot about Ian Fleming during this process? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he was lying when he said we afforded yeah. food and drinkmanship because actually what comes through reading, obviously, the, the Bond works, but also his non-fiction works. So he reviewed a lot of restaurants and he wrote some very good uh, travel writing. There's a, a, a compilation called Thrilling Cities where he kind of gives you a snapshot of various kind of hotspots around the world. And he's a great descriptive writer at all times, but when it really comes through is when he's talking about food and drink um, and you know I think it's funny like there's some people took issue when the first uh, Fleming books came out that uh, Ian Fleming was kind of like a bit of a name dropper like it's not just Bond ordered champagne but the Bond ordered you know Dom Perignon 1932 or whatever it might be and he's always takes great pleasure in describing the supercharger on his Bentley or whatever and likewise with the drink he orders a Gordon's as part of the best book yeah um, and I think that was because actually Ian Fleming cared quite deeply about how, what went into things, how things were prepared. Um, there's an interesting story about how he actually wrote to <laughs> the Distillers Association in the UK. Well, he'd, been, he'd had a heart attack, so he'd been limited to, I think, you know, two or three drinks a day, which is, you know, at the time it seemed to be you know, enough to keep you in good health. Obviously it didn't work for him. Um, but uh, you know, he, he basically said, what are, the, what are the best quality spirits that I can possibly drink? Because if I'm going to only have these two, three drinks a day, I want them to be the best, the purest. And I think he was a huge lover of food and drink, and that shines through in all, everything that he writes. And I think you know, it, the books come alive when, they, when, 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 when they're talking about what he drank. And also, I mean, <laughs> there was a, a really funny BNJ, British Medical Journal study in 2003, where they actually looked to try and quantify the amount that James Bond was drinking through the books. And it's pretty prodigious. They work out that he averages 132 units a week. Yeah. Oh, no, that's not Wait, true. No, no. No, no. He averages 90, 90 units 90, a week. Right. But in You Only Live Twice, he gets through 132. And on day three of From Russia With Love, he gets through 40 units in a single day. So, <laughs> there's, there's, um, there's a lot of material there, put it that way. And then he fights crime and beats yeah. and does all these things on top of that. He's not just lying down and having a nap and then like a burger. He's then <laughs> up and like swimming through his heat. I can't. People. Yeah, something from the book. Another quote from the book was, one journalist recently consumed the food and alcohol allocated to Bond during one day in Goldfinger. He found himself barely able to move let alone infiltrate an international criminal's headquarters. <laughs> For sure. That's about right. And, you know, I think... But at that time as well, it was very important to you, you showcase who you were because it's just been prohibition and you showcase who you were through drinking and what you were eating. It was kind of like making a statement piece and really like just as much as what you were wearing and what you were driving, what you were eating and drinking because of what was available at the time had been rations before. So having something that was like a glass of champagne or ordering by a brand was something that was not available for everyone else. So creating a character like James Bond or 007, it was very much in his character to be like what you're eating and drinking would showcase who he was as a person who he wanted to be. And therefore you kind of lived your way into his life. You got to know him much more. And I think that was quite a beautiful thing. If there's some, some those details that we didn't know that's the things that we're talking about still today. We're drinking James Bond drink. We can live like our way into his life. But you're right, yeah, because at the time, yeah, it was almost like redefining what luxury meant mm -hmm. after a time of great austerity. And there's also some quite comic moments that you get from that. So, for example, in Casino Royale, you know, 
Bond starts his meal with a half an avocado, <laughs> with vinegar, and then finishes it with a single slice of pineapple. And you know, at the time, these things would have been like great luxuries because they've been so scarce. But it kind of, that, that, there's a way in which the, yeah, the eating and drinking, you can, it, it's very much of its time in that. And like, if you look at, like, I think it's like champagne was mentioned in the book, a hundred, a total of what, this is part of the oh. quiz later. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, quiz later, <laughs> and the there's way. a quiz. Yes, there's no quiz. But I'm just saying, in regards to like the everyday drink, which we all refer to as like beer, we would always like, say, if he was definitely not a, like a fake fanatic on beer, or it's kind of like with kind of cans of drinking that piece. It needed to be something that had a bit of like vagabond feel to it when he was drinking Richard Fairhouse. But when then he was making drinks himself, like, did you want to talk about the old man thing? Oh yeah, well, what I was going to say was that for someone, Ian Fleming, who spent so much time in Jamaica, Yeah. this may be telling you too much for the quiz, but he, um, James Bond doesn't really drink that much rum. Whereas Ian Fleming was drinking a lot of rum. And you, you yeah, brought up the, the, his, one of his drinks, yeah, which is absolutely. insane. So he obviously had his own interview, even though he himself wasn't particularly fond of making his own martinis and stuff at home. He very much ordered them precisely. And if he was pouring himself, it would have been like probably whiskey or champagne if it was in-house. But when he was in Jamaica, he made a drink called Old Man Thing, which was a really weird little punch bowl that we've punch, made punch it. Punch is a loose tire, but it was in a bowl. The drink that's in the book is a beautiful, light, refreshing punch bowl, just of the style, with up tea, and it's lovely, <laughs> and it's a mandarin, and it's refreshing. Yeah. But the way yeah. he made it, well, I think it was something like several bottles of Jamaican rum, uh, the peels of an um, orange and a lime, no fruit, don't touch the fruit, don't you squeeze the fruit, and then set the bowl on fire with a match. And that's what you're supposed to be drinking. I'm like, I, and I wonder, I, I, that's probably not something Bond would have drunk it, but that's definitely something that Ian would have at a fest. It was, like, it, yeah, out. it was basically his party drink, Yeah, a golden eye. So he lived in Jamaica. He wrote all of his, all of the book, book, Bond books in Jamaica mm -hmm. um, and spent more and more time there as he got uh, older. Um, and yeah, old man's thing with his party trick. Mm. Basically, it was, yeah, pure rum with little fire. Yeah, with a bit of effervescent yeah, citrus oil. Which is not just no, it's delicious and it's a lovely punch bowl and there's something to tell for, but do tell the story of they could have been had something else, but they're having this delicious bottle. I know, it made me think that there was not that much to do in Jamaica then, because they just, everyone would just go over and, because the next day, forget it, I'm sure you could never even get up after drinking this. Because <laughs> it was pure, pure alcohol. <laughs> now, now on to Bond and the drinks. You took so many of these amazing cocktails. You made them, you recreated. So first, let's talk about the classic cocktails, Bobby, maybe how you reworked or added your own spin to the classic cocktails, because James Bond drinks a lot of bourbon he drinks obviously the martinis, but he's drinking. He even drinks a Negroni in the in the book, which surprised me. I was like, oh, he was so hip, you know? Yeah. They'd already been around since the late 19s, just after the First World War, actually. Yeah, I think in the book there's ten kind of three classics. There's four tiers, so that me and I come up with that are kind of a lot to do with the characters and directly do that. But I think there's still ten. They're both. Um, actual, like, very classical, classical fashion, totally decorated, these kind of things. And really a lot of what we do adds swift into these drinks, and that um, we put a lot of kind of what people drink nowadays in the flavor palette, and obviously kind of modern techniques of 
distillation, etc., 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 that we can put into um, the spirits that we can go with. This is how we would make an old-fashioned. Now, this is what we believe is a delicious old-fashioned. It's actually slightly different to what historically, for example, an old-fashioned, an old-fashioned whiskey cocktail or whiskey cocktail, depending on how far back you want to go, would be made. But then there's there has to be some kind of element of creative license in these kind of things because a lot of the grades are made, the grades are made very differently. Palettes are different. There are so many variables that you just can't be as completely true to historic. It's good to know um, where drinks come from, and it's really important for that. So, what we did, we went as close to a palette that we think would be embraced that, but also would be made in the kind of times of planning and when you would make them. So. Yeah, no, and also the fact that, like, one of the things that you probably would mention is that, uh, like, techniques. There's a lot of new techniques that they didn't have in, like, the early 1900s. It's this, we know about texture and mouthfeel and, like, ABVs, and we know just about, like, how to filter our juices. And it was, like, if you were having a daiquiri back then, it probably would have been, like, with old brown castor sugar and, like, it would be gritty on your teeth and it would be lingering and probably a bit overproof and burn your nose a bit. Probably really tasty if you're on a beach. Delicious, but if you're sitting in a bar, you want it to be smooth and mouthful and you're making it home, you want to know the correct way of baking, same thing you make an omelette. You want to know the correct way of making, I don't know, Gordon Ramsay's omelette. You want to know why it looks so good in the movies. You want to make that yourself. So... We took creative license of making sure that when you make it at home, you have those little tips and tricks of how to make it just that little bit better and a bit more perfect. And then we respected the fact that these are classics, so they should be tasting like a classic, looking like a classic. You should be wanting to live into the world of like thinking in them in the, when they were made, so you can still feel that. So there needed to be a parallel between the two. And I think the thing about classic cocktails as well is that, you know, in many ways, a simple classic is the best measure of a bartender because, you know, you don't have lots of different layers of flavour to hide behind as a general rule. You know, it's about the spirit that you select to use, the proportions you're going to choose, like, you know, the martini, which is Ian Fleming's favourite drink and James Bond's favourite drink, is probably the best example of that in that the choice of spirit, the choice of vermouth, the choice of proportions, how it's prepared, how long it's stirred for, how cold your glass is, all of that has so much impact on the final drink. And Ian Fleming, for example, as mere reference, never made his own martinis. <laughs> he was very good at directing people. He liked it six to one with vodka, as a general rule. Although he would take gin if he was in a British pub. But, you know, I think that's, that's what's so important about having the classics in there, is that how a classic is prepared, how it's done, is so much about the skill of the bartender and their choice of being with you. I was wondering, while you were speaking, when you were doing research on the books, did you find that Bond was drinking certain things at certain times? Like, you know, he's about to beat up someone, so he's <laughs> going to have the bourbon and soda. You know, oh, he's lounging or trying it on with a girl. He's drinking that martini. Uh, I'm not sure I picked up on that so much. Well, I, I mean, picked up on a couple of things where oh, yeah. he was more or less like, one book, he was definitely allowed to drink brandy and ginger ale, but the next book, that was like a poor man's drink, and you could never drink that. <laughs> and I'm like, you've not really given me a break here. Yeah. Um, it was very much a scenario I'm like, okay, so that's obviously where he is taking a, a uh, twist of the fat here. Mm. And then we kind of tried to just play along going like, okay, 
maybe that would have been five years later and that's obviously not trending like the New York Times anymore somebody else has mentioned something um, but then I think he drank a lot of champagne when he was with the league. Exactly, yeah, that's the only trade I picked up on it. He said to drink Kevin Martini's champagne cocktails when he was top. Yeah, and also... I whisk whiskey by himself. Yeah. But that's, that was not a Whiskey when he was in his bedroom or with, yeah, like, Felix's like, his best mate. Or with his guys. Right. When it was with yeah. Felix's best mate, there was, that he was a Texan, so they would drink, like, a lot of whiskey cans. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's, there's a kind of geographical bent as well, so... His Negroni he has in Italy, obviously. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm not sure he actually drinks a daiquiri, but he encounters a lot of daiquiris in the Caribbean. Um, well, from the book, I gathered that really a lot of the women are drinking daiquiris. Yeah, that's right. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. And Bond is not drinking a lot of daiquiris. Oh, and you can see that kind of influence in like the honey time or with this. She was kind of like described as like this horror's animal who grew up with animals, loved the animals, and like. Uh, she was the one that walks up on the feet in the bikini and the sweetest of humans. And like, we were like, we need to make a rum drink. She's from the... In the book, there's no bikini. Yes. Oh, well, okay. she's <laughs> But Ursula Andres probably said no. Oh, well, we made a, like a peanut butter, banana, exotic kind of bitters, kind of daiquiri sound to kind of showcase who she would have been in a drink scenario for the book. All right. I think we have to go to some of the villains, though. Oh. So talk me through how you created probably the most famous villain, Blofeld. So Blofeld, well, do you want to talk about Blofeld or should I talk about Blofeld? Well, it was, it was obvious that it was going to be something like quite strong, full, sharp, cold. It, it had to be striking as well. Yeah. It had to be, it could just be this dry, like, it could just be this uninteresting, like Martini, I love a Martini, that, but it's a very clean, very elegant drink. And Blofeld is more of a, he was an a evil genius. His chorus and free influence, right? Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, did he? What did we put? Belvedere and Roots. Yeah, we did. Yeah, but Belvedere yeah, for the Polish, Mystica for the Greek kind of earthiness. But then I think we put some light because he had the Japanese Death Garden. Yeah, no, no, it's also, no, I think it's because uh, obviously Blofeld famously has one kind of milky, yeah. kind of haunting oh, well, that eye. So the garnish, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but also I think the nighty fruit because he had like, he was, he had like a garden of yeah, death right. in yeah, yeah, Japan. Yeah. And we yeah. were like, this is like a Japanese kind of scenario. We were like, that's the influence and straight. And then we took the fruit and made it as like this kind of like garnish and it's very much kind of striped. And he has a big, rocky iceberg of a, like a garnish, like as an iceberg, where like this really showcase like a straw evil, ruthless character, and it's one of those that I we, we just imagine him holding it as a false, big, chunky piece of glass as well. Over the time. Thank you. And yeah, the bank is very good. Very I also love that very it has soft. vodka in it, because of course, James Bond drank yeah. vodka martini, so I thought, yes, he's as equal, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. equally as bad as James Bond is good. Vodka isn't that bad, speaking from a Swedish perspective. Vodka's a good thing. No, no. no. no I mean, they're, they're equal. They mirror, they mirror each other. Yeah, right, right, right. They're equals in that. Now, all right, let's go to the Dr. Bird. Oh, that's really sweet, Edward. Actually, this was an homage to you and Rosie. Um, if you look around, you can see some birds. So Ian was, from the Fleming estate, told us very much that he was a uh, lover of bird. He was an ornithologist in, in the making and he loved the concept of watching birds and we thought it was so fitting with Edward taking the inspiration 10 years ago to what they night and then Oreo and then they made Swift when Swift came about that was their 
baby sweat and it's all kind of bird process of the fact that they had this connotation we thought it was really nice maybe it's like secret break in the menu that nobody knows so actually it has a massive part from all of us so the two base fitters in their stories and so which has a macaw with a car on the bottle and eagle wear it has an american uh, bald eagle on it and we were like we thought that was quite nice little marriage maybe like it's a traditional beautiful sour with tea but we thought it was nice kind of meeting like a note thing mark that's a bit hidden that nobody knows about that has like an emotional audience for the colleges, but also you guys for kind of connecting us all together. Also, I mean, Ian Fleming was a big bird lover as well. I mean, oh, it's a story that, that some of you may know that James Bond, the name actually came about because uh, a, a book that he had on his desk, which was something like Birds of the Caribbean, was written by an ornithologist whose name was James Bond. Um, and now, actually, the logo of the incoming estate is a little hummingbird. Because mm. um, uh, yeah, that was one of the... The uh, swallowtail yeah. is the Jamaican national bird, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. Now, we have two of the most famous ones. And, of course, the Vesper Martini, <laughs> which we have to spend a little bit of time on. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to read from the book. Do you want, do you want, do you want yes, me to read? Yeah, you read. Yeah. All right, I'll read. This is one of my favorite parts. Excuse me, English. I am Swedish for anyone who has to figure the accent out and been wondering all night. Uh, they know that. You're from Umeå. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. so I'm Irish and New York. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Canadian. Shaved very well until it's ice cold, then had a large thin slice of metal peel. Got it? Certainly, Monsieur. The barman said, please, for the same Gosh, that's certainly a very good writer. Bond laughed. Well, I'm concentrating in these way. I've never had more than one drink for dinner, but I do that that one to be large and very strong, very cold and very well made. I hate small portions of anything, particularly when they taste bad. This drink's my own invention. I'm going to patent it when I can think of a good name. Casino Royale, Chapter 7, Rouge de Noir. I can't drink the health of your dear frock without knowing your Christian name. Vesper, she said. Vesper Lind. Bond gave her a look in the choir. It is rather a bore always having to explain, but I was born in the evening, on a very stormy evening, according to my parents. Apparently, they wanted to remember it, she smiled. Some people like it, others don't. I'm just used to it. I think it's a fine name, said Bond. And I made a certain. I borrow it. He said about the size of my genie that did it and search for me for it. The lesser, he said. It was perfect and it's very appropriate to divide out of my cocktail will be now drunk all over the world. Can I have it? So let us take a one first, she promised. It sounds like a drink to be proud of. We'll all have one together when this is all finished. Casino Royale, eight, pink and champagne. Now, why don't you tell us what the ingredients are? It's truly good to tell us with you. The ingredient is essentially it's. Yeah, it's it's essentially it's old martini. It's three it's six parts gin, two parts alcohol, one part uh I wine of sorts. Kind of the lay um most people know that it's a product that doesn't exist anymore. It's essentially more bitter, more vivacious version of the lay which exists now. Um all we did we used um we used cocaine used cocaine americano, which is a kind of Italian substitute to the French version. Which is not, it's as close as you're going to get to Kina Lele at the moment without kind of making your own product. Um, so that has the herbaceous, the brightness of Kina Lele. We had 
like several historians, for example, he yeah, has had some particularly kind of vertical taste stuff, and that's about as close as you're going to get. Yeah, and long maybe years old because the roots and chicken make it poison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, honestly, like, don't make me. Don't, 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 don't play around. Yeah, please, please don't. Um, but is there a problem that I have with? of Esper is that the vodka doesn't really do very much. It really doesn't. So you've got six parts gin and two parts vodka. So the vodka is essentially just making the gin a bit less ginny. Um, uh, he says it's a vodka fan, which makes it really striking every time. <laughs> the, point, the point on this is that I reckon it was, this was, this drink was written by Ethan in the 50s. And this would have been a time like peak Cold War time, so the fact, but it was about, at the same time, it's exactly when Smirnoff was creating, and Mar was kind of pushing into the American market, which is kind of a actually an impressive thing in Smirnoff's right in his own right for to have a Cold War product to actually just be that influential in America is a really impressive so, marketing tactic in his own right. So I reckon it was in there as a as, as just to show that Bond was a trendy person and knew what was what was what was ready. So I said, but I'll tell you. I work in Belgium, which is probably why I'm really, really passionate about it. So I'm sorry if I'm a bit too enthusiastic. But back then, if you were drinking vodka, you were drinking the best because nothing had to be flavoured. So anything else was flavoured back then because it was so poorly made that they were like, obviously, this is drinkable. But if you showcase yourself as drinking something as neat as vodka with as little of its ingredient as even to nod towards a vermouth, you know you were drinking quality. And that's why people were drinking vodka at the time, that's why vodka became so prominent, is because you were showcased drinking something that was so well made that hardly tasted of anything. I can tell that to my heart, but, um, <laughs> but that was the theme behind it. That's why vodka became such a vagabond, trendy... Like, if you were drinking a martini, you showcased that you had something of quality. Yeah, the, 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 the marketing phrase in the 50s is smart enough to eat breathless, yeah. which was incredibly clever <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the working lunch. Exactly, the idea is you can have yeah. a martini at lunch. Oh my god, I love it. Which is like, which is super clever for people in the 50s. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's also, Ian Fleming had something to say about the Vesper, right? I mean, that, that's the funny thing. I think that's what makes the Vesper such a kind of a cipher of a cocktail. He, apparently claimed to a friend a, a couple of years after writing Casino Royale that he actually just dashed it onto the page because I think when he first started writing Bond, it was just a hobby, you know, he was not expecting it to become the kind of phen phenomenon it's become. And he said, yeah, I just dashed it onto the page. I tried making it a few months later and it was bad. Um, <laughs> so it's, I think Ian Fleming loved to tell a good story, and so who knows if, if, if that was actually true. But I think it is, as Bobby says, it's a drink that shouldn't really work. Like, you know, the, the received wisdom nowadays is that you stir a martini, you don't shake a martini, and wipe a vodka in a dip martini. And yet, and yet, it's a drink that is, that is called, you know, day after day, year after year, all over the world. There are bars named after it, here, there, and everywhere, mm. and obviously, the Bond cachet helps, but it, it's a drink that I think people still enjoy drinking. And I think it's a drink that a huge amount of study has gone into in the bar community of how to make it work. Many arguments between married couples as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but however, it's more like a scenario where you need to really respect the dilution because dilution, as Edmund was speaking about before, and a cold glass and a method of making it has so much in it. 
that is equal towards the ingredients because if you over them a margarine, there's nothing worse. You think it's a really heavy flavour of fast water, it's not enjoyable. But under them feeling well, you're not going to get that crisp, sharp, refreshing feeling that you want from a vesca. And you see something that's a lifestyle for root, you're not going to get that little bit of sweet texture that you need from the vermouth to really enhance the flavours to sitting in the tin of the vodka. I can see a guest who's ordered one already. So I hope it's working out for them. It is on the menu. You can have one, please. But exactly, it's respectfully written the fact that the message equals, yeah, three please. Excuse me, where my jacket is? Uh, and that, that's the whole point of it, it needs to be respected. That's why we've written so much detail into how you're making it and free the hardware first and do that because it becomes a dirty experience and that's what books are about. It's about living your way to the world of a dirty experience, an enjoyable experience. It's not something just you whip on that. You don't whip on that scrap. You, you dress up for it, you put on a nice shirt. <laughs> you make sure there's a music in the background and you have a good whisper. That's the whole point. Um, otherwise, just have a glass of wine or gin and tonic, you'll be fine. But it's, it's, it's an experience in itself and it should be respected itself. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point and also links back to kind of how aspirational the Bond books were back in their day and going back to these kind of beautifully worded, worked up descriptions of beautiful cars, watches, clothes, hairs, coffee as well. You know, James Bond drinks Blue Mountain coffee, he uses an American Chemex to filter it, um, you know, it's all described in such detail. And as we know, we're coming, we're coming out of a world where the availability of quality products was so, so low. And all of a sudden, you know, at the highest strata, you were starting to see this stuff again. And people who picked these books up, I think, saw something that whether, you know, it was a sort of the birth of the consumerism that kind of built, you know, the one America, the Cold War, if you like. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I think there's something quite, uh, quite beautiful about it, mm. because who doesn't love beautiful things and great quality spirits and wines and food? And I think it was almost like the, the rebirth of really appreciating that for the general public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mixing it in with adventure, sex, love, you know, all of those murder. things. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that um, you brought up in the book about Vesper is Vesper Lind was a character that James Bond loved but if you listen carefully and i don't know if this is true or not it sounds like west berlin west berlin <laughs> and now it's his little you know no it's hey it's from the book yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it was his kind of nod to the cold war like exactly, you said yeah, exactly uh-huh. i mean there's lots of stories about how it might have come about there's also a story of how i think he was visiting a friend's house in jamaica and obviously vest was his like evening prayers uh, I think Vesper is the Latin name for the, the, the uh, Dumfee, right? Is it? It's a Vespa. Vespa is the, uh, Vesper, Vesper is the Latin name for oh. a, um, it's not a bee, was it? A wasp. 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 So I was like, maybe that's a personality but, being born in a store. The, so, the, so the butler came out with pre-dinner drinks and said, Vespers are served. And so perhaps he got the idea from that, from that as well. Yeah. Um, do we have time for one? Oh, no, it's... Okay, all right. It's, it's so nice to end on the, ve- the Vesper Lind, but we do have... I wanted to talk about all the ones that are on our list, our cocktail list for tonight, and there's one more. 
pussy galore. <laughs> All right. So I guess we have to end on pussy galore. So why don't you tell us a little bit how you created that? So it's actually a great that I've been working on before you came to ask about the book. And it's a twist on a Manhattan. And it's supposed to be like a wintry cold Manhattan with a bit of a fight. It's got, it's got the bourbon in there, it's smooth, it's got maraschino, it's got a bit of fragmenta, and a little bit of cardamom to bring that winter feel. Because Pussy Galore was a, a famous woman with a lot of gumption, and she was a, a gang leader in New York, born and raised proper Manhattan. And me and my husband used to live in Manhattan, and I kind of like, I decided with the road, I'm like, my favorite drink is in Manhattan. I'm like, I've got to really showcase you. And like, I'm like, I know who you are. I know who you are as a person. And she's so fierce. And I was like, I'm going to make sure that this, there's a bit of sweetness, there's a bit of love in there. The Hudson Bourbon that I'm using is the first bourbon that actually came on the market, being made in Manhattan after Prohibition. It's all like born and raised, proper, solid, um, and earth. New Yorker that she really is, she like leads a gang of women and they're all really like fantastic, <laughs> fantastic villains that are so beautifully portrayed that I thought I'd be stuck to one of my favorites. She's so fierce. I just like the use the word gumption. Okay, well, I could quiz you on every single cocktail all night, but we have limited time here. So thank you to Mia, Bobby, Edmund. I really appreciate this time. Thank you to Oreo for having us, one of my favorite bars in the world. Thank you to London Cocktail Week for having us as well. And of course, we couldn't have done this without the generosity of Diageo Reserve and Kettle One. So thank you so much. And please, please, please stick around and try all the different cocktails that Oreo's made from the book. Thank you so much, everyone. It was a huge thrill and honor to have Mia, Bobby, and Edmund as guests for Lush Life Book Club. And thank you so much to the generosity of Diageo Reserve, Kettle One, London Cocktail Week, and the divine Oriole Bar. Don't miss tonight with Olivia Williams, author of Gin, Glorious Gin, and The Secret Life of the Savoy, thanks to Bullet and Kentucky Tourism. And if that weren't enough, on Tuesday, October 26th, I'll be with Jason Clark, author of the Art and Craft of Coffee Cocktails, and Pippa Guy, Let's Get Physical, sponsored by Tanqueray. Come along if you're in London, it's free, and you get a welcome cocktail. So, speaking of cocktails, what cocktail did Ian Fleming invent? It's our Cocktail of the Week. According to Ian Fleming in Casino Royale, it's, quote, three measures of Gordon, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lille. Shake it very well until it's ice cold, then add a large, thin slice of lemon peel, unquote. Yes, our cocktail of the week is the Vesper Martini. Kina Lille no longer exists, but you can use Lille Blanc. Combine three ounces of gin, one ounce vodka, and half an ounce of Lille Blanc in a mixing glass filled with ice. Then stir, stir, stir until chilled. Strain it into a martini glass, express the lemon peel, and then drop that lemon peel into the Vesper Martini. Cheers.
You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Saw No Time to Die last night in a real movie theater. Without giving anything away, it seemed less playful than the others and way more serious. I like a little joy in my Bond films. Maybe next time. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Next time, we'll be revealing secrets of the Savoy Hotel. Until that time, bottoms up.